G'day folks and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. When in the height heaven was not named, and the earth beneath did not yet bear a name, and the primeval Absu who begat them, and Chaos Tiamat, the mother of them both, their waters were mingled together, and no field was formed, no marsh was to be seen. When of the gods none had been called into being, and none bore a name, and no destinies were ordained. Then were created the gods in the midst of heaven. Lahmu and Lahamu were called into being. Wait a minute, I thought we were reading Genesis 2. What's all this? Oh, no, 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 sorry. I'm, I'm actually reading the Enuma Elish. Did you notice the bit about the plants of the field that hadn't grown yet? Yes, it reminds me of the uh, the patch on the back of my hair. But <laughs> what's this bit about the marshland? Yeah, well, the, the marshes we used to grow food as well, so... Much like their fields that were planted with crops, you know, for the Babylonians, the marshlands provided sustenance as well and were cultivated for other agricultural purposes. So, yeah, this is about the origins of agriculture. Okay, and is that what Genesis 2 is doing as well, something similar? Well, yeah, it has a lot to do with that, and I think that where it leads is going to be quite surprising for our audience, actually. A bold claim, but all right, let's have at it then. Welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. We are now picking up steam in our second season. So for long-time listeners, you might recall that back in episode two of our first season, we talked about ancient Near Eastern creation myths. And I basically gave you a rundown of some of them so that you can get an idea of how they work. And I was just doing something a little similar here to give you a bit of background, help you to see Genesis 2 and what follows, the way that an ancient reader or listener might have experienced it. But I'm not trying to say that Genesis 2 is just like other pagan mythology or that you have to think like a Babylonian. I probably shouldn't need these disclaimers anymore after season one, but for the new listeners just coming in, it's worth the clarification. This is more about genre than about theological perspective. So, yeah, we made mention of the beginnings of agriculture, and that's important because we're starting to realise now in this modern era that perhaps our earlier assumptions about agriculture preceding religion in the development of civilization were actually incorrect and that the earliest evidence we have, for example, at sites like Gobekli Tepe in what is now southern Turkey, actually indicates that it was the other way around, that it was the religion of the masses that brought about the necessity for agriculture and further developments in human civilization. Right. So if all you science guys and gals who are interested in working out how scripture aligns with the facts revealed in the world around us, this is important stuff because it brings us closer to reconciling what the archaeological record is telling us, but only if we're reading scripture correctly. Yeah, and when we talk about reading it correctly, we're referring, of course, to understanding what's going on in Genesis 2. We talked last time about how there are different views on Genesis 2. Are we reading a retelling of Genesis 1 with a different perspective or... Is it a different story altogether? I'm going to go for option B. And the natural objection to that is, well, look at the earth covered with water and there's no plants and there's no man and all the rest of that. You know, I mentioned that last weekend. Sounds like it's all getting created again. But as we pay attention to the text, we're going to find that the author is doing something really different here. And I'm just going to lay it out for you. The first time around, we had the cosmology, okay? And we got to understand how God created the world and what creation meant. And we got a bit of an understanding of what everything's for. This time, we've zoomed in a bit, we're getting something of a timestamp on this narrative in the most vague terms. We're looking at a bygone era, a space and time that the author can't exactly enumerate, and he doesn't need to. Getting a date on the calendar isn't the point. Let's look again at our text. Genesis 2, verses 4b through 6, and uh, we're going to do this from the CSB. 
At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, but mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. All right. What I like about this version of the passage is the repeated use of this phrase, of the field. Okay, so we have no shrub of the field, no plant of the field. That's important because it's telling us that we're dealing with an agricultural setting here. It's an agrarian culture. People live on the land. It's what they know. They're farmers. They're shepherds. They're not urbanites living in modern civilization. We're back in the time even before that, before mankind required large crops to grow for food and for trade. Now, I have a real problem with the New Living Translation here because they completely omit any direct reference to the field. And instead you have wild plants and grains. It says neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth. So on the one hand, you do have the acknowledgement of agriculture with the grains, but the wild plants are a complete invention of the translators. It doesn't appear in the original that way, and it serves no purpose other than to generalise beyond the specificity of the text in order to allow a recapitulation view of Genesis 2. So not only have they managed to divorce the first audience from everything they know in terms of their cultural setting, They've managed to reintroduce the potential for a materialist reading of the original creation account from Genesis 1 by placing emphasis back on the material elements of creation rather than a functional ontology. Because while the translators have been unable to alter the purpose for the plants according to this reading, what they have achieved is a generalisation indicative of the absence of plants as a whole, regardless of their function. The effect of that translation then is to remove the audience from their homeland and their way of life and to remove the vegetation from existence while still paying lip service to its function. This would have been utterly incomprehensible to the first audience of scripture. Complete nonsense. So the translators of the NLT have decided that we should be reading Genesis 2 as a retelling or a revisitation of the first chapter of Genesis, which would indicate that while they've got the grammatical sensitivity to be able to pass verse 4 correctly, they've somehow managed to ignore the subject matter entirely. They want us to be reading this text as if it was set in a time before there were any plants at all. And that's simply not what the text states. Because twice it mentions the idea of fields, and fields, of course, serve no purpose other than growing plants at the hand of man. It says nothing either for or against the presence of other kinds of plants at all. What I do like about the CSB is its use of the land instead of giving us the earth, which to the modern ear gives us ideas of globes spinning in space, planets, all that kind of thing none of which was going through the mind of ancient Israelites. It's not the planet Earth, it's just Earth. It's the land, it's the place where you live. I'm not going to go into the whole argument about what shape it is. For those who came in late, you can go back and listen to our earlier episodes on cosmology in Season 1 for more information about that. The land is the country. The land's the place where you live, where you work, where you do business, where you raise your children. Above all, the land is the territory of your God. We're probably better acquainted with the Earth as land when we read it in fairy tales and stuff like that. When we read the fairest maiden in all the land, we wouldn't dare consider that to be the planet. No one's talking about that. We're talking about the country. We're talking about the kingdom. That's the land, not the world, not the earth. And the same thing goes here in the biblical text. The earth should usually be translated as the land. Perhaps some of our Bible translators were trying to do some theology for us. Maybe they thought by choosing the word earth, they could take advantage of the modern application of the word to tell us a theological message and to explain that the God of Israel is not just the God of Israel, but of the entire world. But these theological notions are out of place in the text. And while they might be technically valid, they wouldn't have made sense to the first audience. They would have been regarded as foolishness. We're going to see as we continue through the primeval history that the same error of considering the land as the modern earth 
leads to some really crazy conclusions about how to interpret these narratives. And I've spoken before about importing later theology back into early texts. It's a disaster. Don't do it. Having said that, I think it's pretty clear that Genesis 3 and 4 belong to the same original narrative that began in the last half of chapter 2, verse 4. And that means that we are able to see legitimate connections between this passage in 2, verse 5 and 6, and the chapters that follow. What I'm about to tell you is one of those things that you'll hear from few other commentators on this. So if you thought that my exposition of Genesis 1 was controversial, you might want to sit down. Let's read verse 5 again slowly. Genesis 2, verse 5, again from the CSB. No shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. Before we get too far on this, we need to talk about the earth, the land, the field, the ground, or the dust. Now, at first, this might seem like semantics. I might as well have said the cream, the bone, the white, the off-white, the ivory, or the beige. But each of these terms has a specific meaning, and we've already covered some of them. We'll use earth when we're talking about the cosmos as a whole, as in the heavens and the earth. And we use land when we're talking about the country in which people live. Both of these are the Eretz, the habitable places where you find people. We talk about the field, or in Hebrew, Sadeh, when we're discussing agriculture and land set aside for that purpose. We also have the ground, in Hebrew, the Adamah, which is the soil. And then we have the dust, the Afar in Hebrew, the unremarkable and yet innumerable substance that constitutes the common ground. All of these terms are important to distinguish, and they all have a role to play in this chapter and following. And I'm going to keep coming back to these definitions, so don't forget them. We're being told here that no shrub of the field and no plant of the field had yet grown because the Lord had not caused it to rain. And by implication of the absence of rain, there was no man to work the ground. And it's important to see that connection between the rain and the man to work the ground. These things are connected for a reason, and I'm going to argue that there's causality between these two. I'm saying that there was no field, that there was no agriculture, because there was no man to work the ground. And man was not working the ground because the Lord God had not yet caused it to rain. Yeah, that might seem stupidly obvious, like as plain as the nose on your face. Why work the ground if there hasn't been any rain? Okay, let's think about that for a minute. You know the story. You know it because you've been hearing it since childhood. Whether you're a Christian and you've been over Genesis 3 a million times, because in the tradition of the Western Church, this is at the root of the gospel and our need for a saviour in the Lord Jesus Christ, or because as an Israelite, you've been hearing this since birth because it's commanded in the Torah to read it to your children again and again and again, so that they'll hear this text, because this is part of the framework that forms the understanding of why the world is the way that it is. But if you didn't hear it in Hebrew, then you don't know what's coming yet. The word translated as rain in verse 5 is matara. And we're about to see that it's a very particular word with a fairly narrow definition. Let's have a quick look at some examples of where we find it in Scripture. Genesis 7, verse 4 from the CSB. Seven days from now I will make it rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing I have made I will wipe off the face of the earth. Genesis 19:24 CSB. Then out of the sky the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. Exodus 9.18, tomorrow at this time I will rain down the worst hail that has ever occurred in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Exodus 9.23, CSB, so Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail, lightning struck the land and the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. 
Exodus 16.4, Then the Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. Job 20.23, CSB, When he fills his stomach, God will send his burning anger against him, raining it down on him while he is eating. And Job 38.26, to bring rain on an uninhabited land on a desert with no human life. Psalm 11, verse 6, Let him rain burning coals and sulfur on the wicked. Let a scorching wind be the portion in their cup. Psalm 78, verse 24, He rained manna for them to eat. He gave them grain from heaven. Psalm 78, 27, He rained meat on them like dust and winged birds like the sand of the seas. Isaiah 5, verse 6, I will make it a wasteland. It will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. Ezekiel 38, 22, I will execute judgment on him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour out torrential rain, hailstones, fire and burning sulfur on him, as well as his troops and the many peoples who are with him. Amos 4, verse 7, I also withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. I sent rain on one city, but no rain on another. One field received rain, while a field with no rain withered. So what do you think of that, Chris? Does the rain sound like a good thing? Well, all these verses reminded me of the weather we've had in uh, Perth uh, recently, apart from the sulphur and all the bad stuff. Um, <laughs> but generally, I actually like uh, rain. You know, I like it. It's soothing when I go to sleep. But uh, when I read these verses in this context, if this is uh, rain, then no, thank you. I don't want it. Yeah, it's it's really quite awful. All these all these passages seem to paint it very negatively. Uh, that first one was in the context of the flood. The second one was Sodom and Gomorrah. After that, two references to plagues in Egypt. Even when God said he would rain down food, it was a test to see if they would obey him. So in every situation, it appears to be some kind of a judgment or the actions of a God who has been provoked to anger. Look at the context for that passage from Job 20. Uh, if I read from verse 4, Don't you know that ever since antiquity, from the time a human was placed on earth, the joy of the wicked has been brief and the happiness of the godless has lasted only a moment, though his arrogance reaches heaven? and his head touches the clouds, he will vanish forever like his own dung. Those who know him will ask, where is he? Uh, in Job 38, the point is made that only God can do this. Psalm 11 is about God's righteous judgment. Psalm 78 refers again to the food provided to test Israel's obedience in the wilderness. And in Isaiah, and again in Ezekiel, and again in Amos, it's all about judgment. Even the absence of rain is judgment. That Ezekiel reference, I mean, that's Armageddon, for goodness sake. It's the Gog-Magog war. It's not exactly a nice situation to be in. And that there was every single occurrence of the term matar in Scripture, all of them. So are we still talking about water from the sky? Uh, I don't think so. This is a verb. This is an act of God, and it's connected to wrath and judgment and destruction. And after all that, let's read our text again from Genesis 2. This is the same terminology. Genesis 2 verse 5. No shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. For the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. I'm going to read another passage now from this same narrative. I'm just going to read a little bit into Genesis 3. And we can do that because we're still in the same story in the same context. 
let's see if you can pick up the moment at which it begins to rain in the sense that we've just unpacked here. Not literal rain. This is Genesis 3, verses 17 to 18 in the CSB. And he said to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, do not eat from it. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat from it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. God curses the land. And the man is told that he must work the land for his food, and he will eat the plants of the field until he dies. This is God raining down judgment on the land. No more living a life of leisure, eating the fruits of the garden. Now man does have to work the ground. Now there is someone to raise the plants of the field. So God has sent his rain upon the land, and his judgment stands to this day. That is what Genesis 2.5 is referring to. This is the time before the fall of man. This is the condition of the world prior to that fateful decision. This is the time when everything was good and everything was right in the world. So we're set up before we're even introduced to the man for his downfall. But again, you're only going to pick that up in the Hebrew. I should probably point out too that although the text says there was no man to till the ground, we're probably better off reading it as man did not have to till the ground. That really changes things because rather than the complete absence of humanity as in some kind of pre-creation state, we now have a situation where it's the necessity of working for food crops that is absent in the situation, which is in line with what we're going to read as we continue through Genesis 2 and the situation in Eden. So you can see how idyllic this situation is, but good luck trying to find a translation that brings it out like that. Anyway, let's move on. We've already been introduced to the concept of the man and the ground the Adam and the Adama, or as Robert Alter put it in his translation, the human and the humus. I love how Alter tries to use uh, sound and alliteration and that kind of thing, even though it's in a different language, he tries to adapt to make that work. That's going to be a major element of our study next week, but what about this water coming up from beneath the surface of the earth? The word for mist is interesting here because it only occurs in one other place in the whole Bible, and it's a reference to evaporating water in the book of Job. So we're supposed to get something of the idea of ascending vapor. To put it in perspective, it's literally to exhale. You know, on a cold morning when you breathe out and you can see your breath, you can see the steam escaping from your mouth. That's the kind of sense that this term implies. So it's an exhalation of breath. It's breathing out upward from the earth. And it's this breath, this vapor that comes out from the earth that nourishes the ground. That's a really odd expression, especially when we consider that the word translated as water is a verb, to water, not an actual reference to physical water. So it's to administer something like water for nourishment. On one level, we can consider this nourishment from beneath the surface of the earth as a kind of life-giving force that comes from the realm of the dead. And that might sound morbid at first, but I want you to think now about what causes this life-giving power to rise from such a place. It is the Lord God. And this exhalation of breath, this is what happens when a word is spoken like a spirit rising from the Eretz. This life-giving power ascends to nourish the ground. Like I say, it's too early in the text to be talking about Christian theology, but at this point you've got to admit it really does sound like God is preparing us for the living word to ascend by the power of the Lord God from the realm of the dead to bring life to those who are forced to work the ground. 
This early stage is nothing more than a spiritually discerned whisper of hope, but it's the first glimpse of a hope that will become more and more substantial as we continue through this microcosm of the gospel to the seed of the woman and beyond. This is the template for the messianic profile in its first iteration, establishing a pattern that will run as a theme through the Hebrew Bible until Jesus Christ actually fulfills the type. It's a really uh, powerful text. It sure is. And look how much we lose by not reading it in the original language. It's really important that as we study, we maintain our commitment to getting the words of Scripture as they were handed down. People keep telling me that we shouldn't be reading Genesis as though it was just another ancient Near Eastern creation myth. They say the Bible's supposed to be different. It can't be just like the religious texts of the pagans. It's got to be unique. It's, it's got to be opposed to that. I say, well, yeah, sure, it absolutely is, but that doesn't mean we can divorce it from its context. I mean, look at what we've just uncovered from picking out a couple of little truths from the biblical text and stripping away the presuppositions that modern interpreters and translators have rendered all over it. The story follows a form very much like what we see elsewhere in the ancient world, but by no means do the texts of the pagans deliver a message like this. By no means do they go so deep into exploring the origins of humanity and explaining the situation that mankind finds himself in with respect to God and deliver hope. You see how even this early in Genesis 2, we're finding the roots of the gospel. Now the author is setting us up to show the reader that we can't do this on our own, that we need a saviour who will rise from the dead. There's nothing like this elsewhere in the ancient world. There's no other text so laden with this big picture, personally relevant message that addresses the heart condition of humanity so directly and yet with the artistry of the greatest storyteller in human history. You can look anywhere else in the ancient Near East. Don't tell me that I'm treating the Bible like any other ancient book. All I'm asking of my audience is that we stop treating the Bible like a modern book that was somehow written by ancient people to address 21st century concerns. That's not how inspiration works. <laughs> Well, we'll have to leave it there for this episode. What have we got next time, young Tim? Well, next time, prepare to get your nerd on because we are going to talk about Superman and dirt. I'm always prepared to talk about one of those things. I'm excited. Yeah, I, I love dirt too. I mean, Superman. I'm excited for Superman. Oh, okay. okay. I, I suppose that could be cool as well. I won't talk about compost and substrates and mineral deposits then. Sounds like you're not into that. Uh, no, definitely not, but I love your enthusiasm. Well, look at the time. i got to go. <laughs> <laughs> Moving right along then. <laughs> I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website at giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers My personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of them. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. Well, it's time for a giant answer segment. We haven't had one of these for a while. What have you got for us this week, Tim? Yeah, it's our first Q&A for the season, and I want to really kick it off with a good question. I've got a question here from a friend of mine. His name's Joe. He's asked me if demons and fallen angels are the same or different. Some of our listeners might know Joe from the Commentarians podcast. I was fortunate enough to be a guest on his show a while back. This isn't going to be new material for anyone who's read my book, Answers the Giant Questions, but since it is a question I hear a lot and I haven't addressed that on the show, I thought I might just do a quick rundown on it, a bit of a Reader's Digest edition or Cliff's Notes, if you like, a bit of a condensed summary, and we'll talk about the differences between angels and demons. Okay, so let's talk about angels in the Old Testament. The Hebrew word for angel is malak. It means messenger. So in the Hebrew culture, we see reflected this 
functional ontology that we've been talking about in the podcast to date. These angels are described in much the same way as ordinary humans. They have physical bodies that can be handled and can handle objects. They can eat food. They can engage in sexual activity. They can sleep. They speak to humans in ways that humans understand, and they do pretty much everything that an ordinary person does. But then there are certain unusual abilities that angels seem to have. For example, supernatural powers and the ability to speak on behalf of God. And the prime example of that is the rescue of Lot from Sodom. In every other respect, angels seem to be just like ordinary men. There are no female angels described in scripture. They don't have wings. They just look like ordinary people. But sometimes people seem to have a way of discerning who they are, even from a distance. And we're never told what it is that gives it away. I would suggest that it could possibly be something like a glorious aura or some kind of reflection of divine glory. In all of the scripture, we never see an instance where an angel commits any kind of sin, and yet we have the term fallen angels. So where does that come from? There is another class of divine being referred to in the Old Testament that actually does transgress divine boundaries explicitly on at least one occasion, and as such is subject to a fall from glory. They are called in scripture the sons of God, or B'nai Ha-Elohim. We find examples of them in Job, chapters 1, 2, and 38, in 1 Kings 22, and in Daniel 4, Psalm 82 and 89, Deuteronomy 32, and of course in Genesis 6. But these are not angels. They have a much more important job to do. The sons of God, also called watchers, are responsible for appearing before God in his divine council, where they play a role in determining the destinies of men, governing the territories in which men live, and carrying out various functions that God requires them to do. These sons of God are the kind of beings that fell according to Genesis 6. But it would be a mistake to call these demons. We don't see the word demons until we get into the New Testament period. Prior to that, the Old Testament does feature some kind of malevolent spirits they call the Shadim. That term Shadim is a cognate from Akkadian, Shadu, and it means territorial spirits. So these are the same entities as these fallen sons of God. Our Bibles often translate them as devils rather than demons. Now, while we transition from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we have, of course, what is called by many the intertestamental period or the Second Temple period, which itself incorporates the New Testament period as well. Over the course of the Second Temple period, we're introduced to some new terminology because the writings of the Second Temple period, most notably First Enoch and Jubilees, which is based on First Enoch, have a lot to say about a kind of spiritual entity that appears to have been unknown in the Old Testament period. These entities, called unclean spirits, are said by the author of First Enoch to be the spirits released upon the death of the Nephilim, when their mortal bodies perished in the great flood of Noah's day. These spirits, owing to their semi-divine nature as the offspring of the fallen sons of God with human women, which we read about in Genesis 6, are immortal, and they have no appointed place of rest, so they do not reside in Sheol, which is the normal place where the dead go, and they do not ascend to heaven. Instead, they wander the earth, searching for the embodiment that they once knew by entering the bodies of humans, tormenting them by trying to indulge the appetites that they once had vicariously through their human hosts. These are the entities that we think of when we use the term demons. This is what the New Testament authors are writing about. Things get a little cloudy when we look in other writings of the classical and Hellenistic periods because the Greeks used the term from which we derive the word demon, that is daemonion, to describe any kind of spirit, whether it was good or evil. As a response to this, the authors of the New Testament and subsequent Christian writings used the terms demon, daemonion, or unclean spirit, which is akathartos pneuma, 
to refer only to malevolent spirits. And once again, thinking functionally, the Greek term for messenger, angelos, is the same term that the Jewish New Testament writers and later Christian authors in the early church used to describe the divine good guys, the angels. So demons or unclean spirits are characterized by their lack of embodiment and their hybrid origin, which makes them immediately distinct from angels. They appear to be unable to interact with the world to the same degree of power that an angel can display because they require a host through whom to act as their body. We don't have any scriptural reference to the ability of demons to be able to do those acts which are done in the body, for example, eating, sleeping, sexual activity, or other human exploits. For those things, they need to be able to act through a human host. In this way, demons are also able to communicate, but there is no biblical reason why anything they say ought to be trusted or considered authoritative. Demons are also able to perform supernatural feats, but in scripture they do nothing without a host. They can give their host the strength of giants, even though they lack the body. I realise, of course, that many people will object to a lot of the points that I've raised here. As I said before, I do go into this in significantly greater detail in my book, so I'm not going to occupy myself here with repeating my answers to those objections. If you do want to get more information on this, I'm suggesting that you get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions on Amazon. Have a good read through. If you still have questions after that, I would certainly love to hear them, and I will address them on the show. So as a conclusion, angels and demons are different because demons are, according to the understanding of New Testament authors, the result of the Nephilim, that is the giants having died in the flood, which released their disembodied spirits upon the earth. The Nephilim were the product of miscegenation between the sons of God and human women back in the time before the flood. Angels are physically different. They do different stuff and they don't ever transgress the boundaries God has sent for them. Angels don't fall. Demons don't have bodies. That's pretty much it in a nutshell. The whole fallen angels terminology seems to have come from people not knowing what to do with the term Nephilim, which is applied not to angels, not to the rebellious sons of God, but to the children born as a result of the sexual union between the rebellious sons of God and their human wives. So the giant offspring of that union are Nephilim. There are no fallen angels, and the demons are the spirits of those giants left behind after the death of their bodies. I haven't touched on the Rephaim here. That's another situation altogether. My research has brought me to the conclusion that certain people in the ancient post-flood world had access to some kind of knowledge. They were able to use this knowledge to perform rituals that invoked the demons, those spirits of the Nephilim, and actually bound themselves to those demons in a physical sense, literally becoming giants who went on to form the giant clans of the Bible. This knowledge seems to be lost today, despite the efforts of many people throughout the ages, and particularly in the last century, to obtain it. I don't think it's actually possible anymore in the same sense that it was done before. But I also believe we're going to see human-demon hybrids again in a different form. And I'm not sure about whether or not it's already happening. What a cliffhanger. Thank you, Tim, for that very concise answer and some uh, thought-provoking ideas as always. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. 
That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book Answers to Giant Questions by TJ Stedman on Amazon in paperback and Kindle format. Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com and go to giantanswers.com for more Answers to Giant Questions. Read the blog, catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless.